Welcome to That's What She Said, a podcast of sermons at Galileo Christian Church, Disciples of Christ. Galileo exists to seek and shelter spiritual refugees, who for us are people for whom the church has become boring, irrelevant, exclusive, or even painful, especially people who have been pushed out because of their gender or sexuality. If you yourself I'm reading are a tonight from the fifth chapter we're especially Mark. glad you're listening. We're at the very end of a worship series called The One of God's Own Choosing. And we've just been reading these early chapters in Mark, developing a kind of portraiture of Jesus, the muscular Messiah who is strong and provocative and unafraid of conflict and protective of those who come for his help and not afraid to ask for help himself. Last week, we finished reading chapter 3, and up to now, we've been reading continuously all the stories in the early part of Mark's gospel. But we made the decision this time to skip chapter 4. You can take a look at it if you like. We preached it recently. It is uh, filled with parables, Jesus' teaching uh, with his disciples. And then at the end of chapter 4, he gets into a boat with his disciples, kind of a quick getaway situation to cross the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus decides it's time for a nap. I just love that about him, that he takes naps. It's a holy, it's a Jesus-like thing to do, right? To take a nap? Yeah, and while he's napping, a storm comes up on the sea, the boat almost capsizes, the disciples shout at him, and then Jesus shouts at the wind and the waves, and all is well, until they reach the opposite shore. We've come now to the scariest story in all of the Gospels, except for that other time that a man who never should have walked out of a cemetery did exactly that. The theme for tonight, Jesus will fuck with your economy. Matthew, uh, Mark chapter 5. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes, and when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. This man lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain, for he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart, the shackles he broke in pieces, nobody had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, day and night, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Oh, because Jesus had said to him, come out of this man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding, and the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine. And this herd, numbering about 2,000 pigs, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. 
Well, the swine herds ran away and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus, and they saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. And they were afraid. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it, and they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. Okay, well, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him, but Jesus refused and said to him, no, go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. And so he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm thinking about those swine herds about how they were enjoying the post-thunderstorm sparkle on that serene hillside, about how they were checking the position of the sun to see whether it was time to unwrap their own lunches while the hogs munched happily on whatever their snouts could nudge out of the damp grass, about how they were just doing their jobs, minding their business, when out of the clear blue sky, another dark cloud appeared on the horizon, only this was no thunderhead, this was something else. A cacophony of shrieking, howling mouths, not faces, just gaping maws filled with teeth and extruding tongues, gnashing and snapping and biting into the air. Thousands of them, a legion of mouths roiling and boiling, a cauldron of chaos. Something wicked this way comes, one of the swine herds shouted to the others, but the warning was wasted. That piercing caterwaul of that horrible cloud was already upon them. They dropped their staves, they dropped their lunches, their wineskins, they dropped themselves to the ground, curled instinctively into the fetal position, hands clapped over ears to dull the pain of that noise, eyes squeezed shut against the horror of it. And then, and then the stampede Every pig and piglet, every bellowing boar and squealing sow seized by that screaming cloud, captured by the chaos, turning toward the sea and hurtling down the hillside, trampling each other in their compulsion to careen over the cliff into the sea below, the very waves that Jesus had shouted down a few hours earlier. A cascade of suicidal swine. I'm thinking about those swine herds watching their entire investment drown in the sea. Every ham and pork chop and side of bacon, every pickled pig's foot and hogshead cheese, every football they would have eventually sold, gone in a violent minute. Jesus might not care much for a herd of unclean swine, anathema to his kosher diet, but the swine herds did. And I'm thinking about their economic devastation and how when Mark says in verse 14 that the swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country, they were not reporting a grand salvific miracle. 
but rather a ruinous plague brought to their shores by an uninvited outsider. I'm thinking, too, about the family of the formerly howling, self-harming man, about how on hearing the story, Drowned Pigs and All, his relatives might have felt vindicated. See, we told y'all, they might have said, we told y'all we couldn't keep him at home. We couldn't keep him at all. What had hold of him was way stronger than any of you ever understood. That's why we sent him to the garrisons and restraints. That's why we stopped giving you updates. That's why we quit even going out there to see him anymore. And I'm thinking about what he might have said to them, his family, if they were among the crowd who came out to the tombs to see if what the swine herds reported was true, first peering over the cliff's edge at the shore below, the waves ferrying bloated porcine carcasses onto the sand, ew, then wandering over to the cemetery fence to get a glimpse of the raving, raging monster that used to haunt it day and night, night and day, but now all cleaned up, inside and out, dressed appropriately for the occasion, coherently answering questions about what happened, articulating his experience of imprisonment and liberation the best he could. Might he have looked up, clear-eyed, to meet their astonished gaze and said, Mom, it's me, or some other simple, smiling declarative to assure the ones he had hurt before that he would hurt them no more, that all his faculties were under his control, that all was well with his soul. Might he have introduced them to Jesus, with whom he had been deep in conversation, discussing the reality and nature of evil in this broken world, how there are things that grab hold of you and don't let go, compulsions and addictions that enchant and oppress and subjugate and control you, make you hurt yourself and everybody you love, cost you everything you once held dear. Might he have said, Mom, it's me, and this is my friend Jesus. He's the one who set me free. And I'm thinking about how he and Jesus both would have looked up at her, at them, the astonished crowd, the flabbergasted family, eagerly expecting them to break into a cheer, ready for the flood of happy tears that signify overwhelming joy, what once was lost has now been found, his family might have exclaimed. Kill the fatted calf, bring the finest wine, send word throughout the ten cities. Our son is coming home. Tonight, everybody feasts. Except they didn't. 
did not rejoice, did not throw the expected party. Listen again to what Mark says. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what it was that had happened. They came to Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion, and they were afraid. And those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it, and then they began to beg Jesus to leave. And I'm thinking about why. Why? They're afraid now. Now that the legion is gone, now that the monster has been turned back into a man, and why they seem to be unanimous in their opinion that they really don't want any more of that. Thank you very much. And things would just be better if the source of all these recent developments would skedaddle. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I'm thinking that to explore the weird sequence of their fear after the man has been rescued, we're going to have to talk about economics. Economics. It shows up implicitly in this story when we imagine the impact of the exorcism on those swine herds. Those pigs were money until the legion drowned them in the sea. 2,000 pigs is a lot of money. <laughs> it's a lot of money that somebody lost the day Jesus showed up on their shore. Now, I don't think in Mark's gospel up to now it has been all that obvious that Jesus and your money can make a really rancid cocktail. Mm, of course, there were those fishermen who left their boats and their nets, their whole livelihood to follow him. And there was Levi, the tax collector, who left his cushy government job to go along. And we have confronted the reality that traveling with Jesus often looks more like hunger and homelessness than a rollicking adventure with the heir to all of heaven's riches. Remember how just a couple stories ago they were eating raw grain out of the wheat fields? Because they were hungry. But there are plenty of stories coming up where the financial impact of joining Jesus' vision of God's reign on earth is uh, more explicit. There will be the story of the wealthy man that he challenges to liquidate his assets and give all the proceeds to the poor. That's Mark 10. In Mark 12, there will be an afternoon spent spying on people putting money into the temple treasury, just watching people putting in their gifts and offering commentary on whether it's ever enough until it's the very last pennies in your pocket. His followers will repeat this scene from the Gerasenes in chapter 5 when they carry on Jesus' ministry in years to come. There's a story in Acts chapter 16. Acts is the book that tells us the story of the early church. In Acts 16, Paul casts a demon out of a girl who tells fortunes and makes a lot of money for the men who enslave her. But without the demon, she can't see the future anymore, and her slavers are furious. They have Paul arrested and beaten and thrown in jail for, you know, screwing up their livelihood. It happens again in Acts 19 in Ephesus when the silversmiths, who make those cute little idols for prayer shrines, realize that converts to Christianity aren't going to be buying their stuff anymore. And there's a riot and Paul has to leave town or risk being killed, all for fucking with the economy. 
Because let's face it, a preacher can get away with a lot. Say a lot of radical, gospely things and some four-letter words until she starts messing with your money. Nobody wants to be the one who loses 2,000 pigs today or whatever your equivalent of 2,000 pigs is. For me, it was a job that was going to save my family. We were in deep doo-doo, pushed out of the fundagelical denomination of our youth. Honestly, our marriage strained to the breaking point. The job that my spouse and I shared, over. No equity in any property, way too much student debt, a car note for one car when really we needed two. Coming to the very end of our rope where we lived and seriously needing to make a move, seriously. And Lance was gonna go back to school for a PhD, awesome. But that's a long game that eventually pays off, but it was gonna be costly in the short term. I needed a job, any job, or so I thought. So I went down there to Atlanta from Long Island, and I got one. I got a job, a nice job, with a big salary, and a big office, and a regular-sized secretary to call my own, all of it wrapped cozily in a megachurch worth millions. I interviewed my ass off. I smiled the biggest smiles. I agreed to everything anybody said was important to them. But I knew it wasn't for me. I'm not a mega kind of pastor. And, and, they were not going to recognize my ordination to ministry. It was a different denomination. I was going to have to start all over again. I was going to have to pretend that God had not already been at work in my vocational life. I was going to have to pretend that the ordination I had pried out of my fundagelical church, like Arthur pulling Excalibur from the stone, meant nothing to me. I just could not do it. I passed on the job. I returned home to Long Island from the interview weekend, still unemployed, still desperate, still seriously broke. And I know, because some of you have told me, I know that some of you have done it too. You have made decisions that were financially detrimental because you believed it was the right thing to do, to take a job that helps the world or honors the human family, even if it does not offer the highest return for your labor or even reasonably cover your student loans. I know that you've left a job that dishonors your God-given identity or takes advantage of other people or pollutes our existence in ways you cannot stomach. I know that you have taken lesser vacations or no vacation because you are a committed tither. You have driven your beater car longer than you want to because you send money home to the family that doesn't even necessarily like who you are. 
You have learned to live on less than you make, no matter how little you make, because the Holy Spirit has cultivated in you a love of sharing. That's the spirit of the living Christ, y'all. That's Jesus fucking with your economy. Thanks be to God. Or maybe he hasn't yet. And maybe the idea that he could makes you afraid. It's worth being afraid of. I will testify from my own experiences of financial loss and need and attempts at following closely a savior who seriously never knew where his next meal was going to come from. Make no mistake, church, this is the exact opposite of the prosperity gospel. What he preached, what he lived, what he sometimes did to people, maybe without even meaning to, like to those newly impoverished swine herds trying to figure out their next move. It could be you, I'm saying. It could be any of us. Now, maybe you are thinking that it's kind of small-minded or hard-hearted of the citizens of the Decapolis and of this preacher to be thinking about money at a time like this when a real live human being has been liberated from his bondage, when a life has been so definitively saved in so dramatic a fashion. Remember the guy? The man sitting with Jesus clothed and in his right mind? Surely that trumps the economic concerns of the day? Why are we not rejoicing with him? If his family didn't throw him a party, maybe we should. Think for a minute about the economy. The word economy comes from a compound word in Greek, oikos, which means house or household, and namas, which means law or rule. Oikonomos becomes, in our language, economy. Remember back in the olden days when high school boys took ag classes and high school girls took home economics? No, many of you don't. <laughs> Those home ec classes were not about money. They were about the household, about the management of the household, about the oikonomos, the economy of family life at home. Because economy doesn't just mean money, as it turns out. It has to do with how we arrange our lives together how we allocate resources, how we make decisions and plan our collective future. I'm thinking about how some of our home economies have been organized around someone's unwellness. Families that compensate for years for a parent's alcoholic rages, for example, or a sibling's addiction to pills. Families that arrange themselves around someone's debilitating depression or chronic pain or developmental disability. I'm thinking about how we settle into roles like caretaker or codependent or secret keeper or executive functioneer for the whole damn family. And we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves if that role were suddenly no longer necessary. And then I'm thinking bigger than individual households. I'm thinking about cities and states, about our whole nation, arranging ourselves by race and class, by language and culture, declaring, say, whiteness and wealth to be normative and functional, 
just painting and papering over the dysfunction of embedded racism. I'm thinking about the argument that we just can't afford to give health care to everyone. It would disrupt the oikonomos, the economy, the household of humanity, the way we have arranged it. How we cannot afford a living wage for every worker or a universal basic income for every human. How exalting every valley would mean that some mountains have to come down. And how really terrifying it is to imagine giving up privilege and power for the sake of equity. And how incredibly hard that would be to do. How even Jesus had to negotiate his way to an exorcism of the entangled legion of evils that held that one man in his place in that economy. No wonder they were afraid. I mean, if that guy wasn't the identified patient, the weird and scary one that they could scapegoat from afar, if that guy got well, came back to himself, well, who would the rest of them be? No wonder they wanted Jesus to leave. He fucked with their economy, and I don't just mean their money. I mean that sometimes the suffering you know is preferable to the healing you don't know. I'm saying there are more economies than one. And we all have our places figured out. And it can be terrifying to imagine a rearrangement of it all. And that's the thing about Jesus, see? He rearranges stuff. He rearranges people and demons and livestock and investments and brokenness and the heavy burdens carried by some while others' backs are burden-free. You cannot be with him and not see your world scrambled, rearranged, always for your good, but not always for your comfort. That's our guy. Mark says, when his boat lands on your shore, you better watch out because he's got ideas the way things should be, and some of them are downright terrifying. Thanks for listening to That's What She Said. This podcast is preached almost always by our lead evangelist, Reverend Dr. Katie Hayes. Galileo Church has five missional priorities. We do justice for LGBTQ plus people and those who love them. We do kindness to those in mental and emotional distress and celebrate neurodiversity. We do beauty for our God who is beautiful. We do real relationship, no bullshit, ever. And we do whatever it takes to share this good news with the world God still loves. To support the production of this podcast and the ongoing missional priorities of this church, go to GalileoChurch.org and click on Conspire With Us. You'll have options to use your Venmo or PayPal or use your credit card or bank account. Any amount helps. And if you're kind enough to share your contact information with us, We'll continually send you thanks. Peace.